All right. Well, hey, I am excited. So I, I really do love these moments of uh, our fall study. We started these several years ago, and I like them because it's a time when the entire church kind of slows down on what they're doing and focuses on one thing together, right? And so it was one church on Sunday mornings. We're going after a certain section of Acts 1 through 7, and then you do it again on small groups, but all the small groups going to the same thing. And so there's this literally this connection, this reality of unity that happens just by going to the same thing together. So again, I do encourage you to get involved in small groups. It's just 10 weeks. I just tell people all the time, like, if you get into a group, listen, just love all the people who are there. If you end up not liking any of them at all it's just 10 weeks right and so just like put up a 10 weeks of it and then you can jump into another small group later just kind of rotate around and engage everybody so it'd be super great but i do would love for you to get into that if your time permits there literally is a small group every night except for saturdays at this point and we'd love to make it happen all right to dive into any kind of study of any kind of letter of any kind of book, it's really, really important to, to do kind of a background study to know the who, the what, the where, and the when. Kind of the idea of like, who is the author? Who's the recipient? What's the purpose of the letter? What's the intent? What are the primary themes going on? And, and because in knowing that, you've got to recognize everything that's written has an author. The author has an intended purpose, a specific reason why they're writing what they're writing. And there's a specific recipient, a person who's receiving that. And in reading it, it's receiving it a specific way. And so as you're going through Scripture, it's important to recognize everything that you read has an author and a recipient and specific messages we're trying to get across in the middle of it. So with that, just to kind of give an illustration this morning, I want to read just this little short love note that I wrote, that I wrote for someone. It's this. Hey, babe, just want you to know that I love you. I've been thinking about you all day. The moment you came into my life, everything got brighter. The days became easier and time spent with you feels timeless. I'm so excited to be doing life with you. You are a gift I never want to share. Now, you read that. I read that, and you're like, oh, my gosh, Steve loves his wife, Randall, right? It's a love letter to her, right? That's what you're thinking. And so as you're going through it and thinking about this letter, you're like, that's so sweet. And you read it through this mindset of Steve's love for his wife, but I didn't write that for my wife. I wrote it for another woman. I wrote it for my daughters, right? That's the, that's the letter I wrote. So now I'm going to read this love letter again to my daughters, and I want you to see if you receive it differently because you now know it's from a father to his daughters. I'll read it again. Hey, babe, just want you to know I love you and have been thinking about you all day because they're in college. The moment you came into my life at their birth, everything got brighter. The days became easier. It's not fully true, but right, right, the days became easier. That's what you say. All right, overarchingly. Time spent with you feels timeless. I'm so excited to be doing life with you. You are a gift that I never want to share with the husband I know someday that you will take, right? So do you see the difference, right? All of a sudden, now knowing who it's to and you read it, now you begin to see the power of the affirmation of a father who loves his daughters, it changes everything. And so it's imperative then, imperative being the key word, that when you're studying Scripture and reading through letters, recognizing there were real people with real emotions and real desires and real longings behind what they were writing to very real people who were receiving it in a very real way, and there were different emotions and, and, and relationship issues that are being dealt with in the middle of it. 
And so as we dive into Acts this morning, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you an overview of Acts, specifically looking at Acts 1 through 7, because it's important to recognize that Acts wasn't written for you. It just wasn't. When the writer wrote it, he didn't have you in mind. He literally had a specific person and a people in mind who were dealing with specific issues in the season of life that they were in. Yes, we know that Scripture is timeless and so that now it belongs to us and we learn from it. But it wasn't written to you. And so whenever you're reading Scripture, it's just important to keep that in mind that whatever is being said by the author to the recipient, I need to understand that because it will impact the message because the scripture can't say any more than what God intended that author to write to the recipient. It's really important in reading scripture. And so with this in mind this morning, we're going to kind of go through this overview this morning, this understanding of Acts, again, just looking at the author, the recipient, the specific message, the specific reasons why it's being, being written, the themes, and then some of the primary pieces that the author was trying to get across this morning. So if you have, your, your, you have a notebook and a pen, please take some notes this morning. So that you can look at this, go back to it as you're diving through it uh, in your own reading in the upcoming weeks. So with that in mind this morning, first, let's start with the author, the author of the book of Acts. And we talk about the author of the book of Acts and the recipient and all these pieces. The first thing I want you to recognize, the author is going to be Luke. Luke, right? The person who wrote the gospel of Luke, right, is the author. He wrote, it's the same author of the Gospel of Luke, now wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And the reality is for Luke, he honestly was writing it at the exact same time. He wrote Luke and he wrote Acts all at the same time. It was kind of one work that he was doing. It's like basically Luke 1 and Luke 2, the middle point of them basically equals the resurrection of Jesus. It's everything leading up to the resurrection and then everything after the resurrection. It was the life of Jesus and now the life of the church being led by the apostles, right? And so Luke is writing it here in the moment. Church tradition tells us that Luke was a companion companion of Paul on several of his missionary journeys. Luke was a converted Gentile. So he was not from a Jewish culture, is not from a Jewish tradition. He was a converted Gentile. We're not exactly sure what that looked like, but he was just a God-fearing Gentile who became like grafted into Judaism or came to Christ later. We don't really know. But it gives him then a unique perspective when he writes the really the last two-thirds of the book of Acts. He is a Gentile writing about Gentiles being grafted into the church which should be important to you because it then gives you a unique perspective of understanding, oh my gosh, this is a non-Jewish person writing about then Gentiles being grafted into the church. There's a unique personal perspective he has then in this story. It's important to recognize that when he wrote the Gospel of Luke, this is really important, he was not a personal eyewitness of the life of Jesus, right? That's important. You may not have known that. Luke was not a, a personal eyewitness of anything that happened in the Gospel of Luke leading up to the resurrection of Jesus. We don't probably never met Jesus, right? Never saw any miracles that he did. 
in the act, in the book of Acts, you'll begin to see where all of a sudden Luke will kind of go into some first person, some first person. Because in his missionary journeys, some of those missionary journeys, he was there for. Some of those stories are personal stories. He makes that first person in writing it. Others were just stories that he heard about or stories that he was told about, whatever, or stories that he read about personally. And so in this and recognizing, this is the author. Luke, the one who wrote Luke, not a personal eyewitness of anything in Jesus' life and just parts of what he's been writing about in the story, in the story of the early church, right? We are told in Colossians 4.14 that Luke was a doctor. And so more than likely, this is this guy who's writing is a very educated man. He is, uh, we see even in the, some of the language that he uses, some theologians say even the language that he uses like three or four different times in the book of Acts, he uses medical terms that only a doctor would know how to graft them into the story and how to use them correctly. So when we talk about Luke, he's not just some random guy over here, but he is an educated, even the style of writing, I'm not going to dive into all of that, but even the style of writing he uses was very, it was the literary uh, style of the day, which meant that he was educated because he understood that style of writing. So in that, when you think about Luke, recognize he's not some random fisherman follower of Jesus. He is a very well-educated Gentile doctor who is well-respected by the world that he lives in and has, has a big brain. And so when he's taking all of the stories we're going to talk about and put them together, it's not from some random type thing. It's literally a smart guy who knows what he's doing. It's really important to begin to see Luke is a very well-educated man. His recipient, his recipient is this guy Theophilus. For Luke, again, this is the second part of a two-piece letter that he is writing to his friend Theophilus. Theophilus means friend of God. So some people over the years said, probably not a real person. Maybe it's just anybody who's a friend of God and it's kind of just written to anybody. But most people think Theophilus was an actual person whose name meant friend of God. The reason they think this is in this platform, even the way that Luke addresses the letter to the honorable Theophilus, the idea that's written to him in both places and actually speaks to the idea of patronage, patronage. The idea that someone comes to an educated person, a writer, and says, hey, I want to employ you, I want to pay you to do this work for me, and so that you can go and have time and space to do that. Every book you read today has somebody like that. They literally had a book publisher behind who was fronting them money to give them space to go write. So they had the freedom to do that, to get their thoughts on paper, then to publish that book. At the very beginning, they do. We want to thank Tyndale Publishing for blah, 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 right? Here he's saying to the Honorable Theophilus, it's a literary device to come and to thank and to honor the person who's been his patron in his writing. So Theophilus, but it's not just for Theophilus. Most people believe that Theophilus, who was a Gentile himself, a convert who probably did not know any of the apostles, who's now coming to faith, is having this moment of like, hey, I believe this with all of my being, but I have to confess there's, there's just things that I don't know. Theophilus, excuse me, Luke, I want to pay you to put together all the thoughts for myself and then for everybody else who I'm friends with who are Gentiles along with me. 
So he's a, he's a patron who he's writing to and specifically written to Theophilus and anybody else that Theophilus wanted to share it with and then obviously was ultimately shared with the church as a whole. When was it written? Again, it's hard to think that when it's written is important, but when is it written? Somewhere between 70 and 90 AD, and I will just tell you there's a lot of people who have speculation around that. But the big thing, this is important to note, the big thing to know is that it was written after 70 AD, after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the second temple, right? This is when, man, Christianity definitely is like this minority religion. Judaism is all, like it's been pushed out here in Rome and the Roman Empire is coming and taking over. And so what they're writing is, is a, in a season of kind of turmoil as a, as a people. And Christianity is definitely on the margins. And being a Christian is really, really difficult. And they no longer have the temple to come to to be a place of worship, right? And so it's a real unsettled season for those who are believers at the 70 to 8, 98. AD, most of the disciples, the apostles, actually are no longer living. They've been killed. And so no one has, no one has like the primary leaders of the church. Like it's a really big deal. Because think about the early church, they had all the apostles. These are people who have been like firsthand eyewitnesses of the life and the person of Jesus. And now all of them are gone. There's a little bit of being unsettled in that moment because the very ones who were our people, the leaders, the ones we look to, Man, they're no longer here. And so Theophilus is having to write with that in mind. Or Susan, Luke is having to write Theophilus with that in mind. Theophilus is in this unsettled moment. Can you get that sense? All of our primary leaders, the ones we look to, are gone. And now we don't really have leaders. And maybe Theophilus was a leader himself. And he's like, man, I need something to hold on to to give to my people. So when? After the fall of Jerusalem. The purpose so the purpose of both letters is actually named in the first four verses of Luke. And I should have pulled it up and actually read those four verses. So you can just read it on your own. But the purpose of the letter, according to Luke, and this says this in those verses, is and it's on the screen. It just says this, an orderly account, an orderly account of the life of Jesus so they can know the certainty of the things that they have been taught. Right? It's an orderly account to know, the, to know the certainty of the things they have been taught. So the goal isn't just like this personal history, although it's part of what Luke is doing. It's that his primary goal in writing is to confirm to Theophilus and everyone else, hey, the commitment that you made and the instructions that you received, right, that you received have liter- are true and have engaged you with the true and authentic Christian movement. The purpose is to help them begin to see who they are in the story of Jesus and to find themselves in it as Gentile Christians. Right? This is the intent and this is the purpose. Luke wants to explain to Theophilus and the fellow believers how they can be sure again that they are part of God's plan, that they are part of the Christian movement, that the Christian movement itself, this is important, that the, this is really important. He wants to write so that they will know the Christian story itself and the Christian movement is a legitimate religion, a legitimate avenue by which God is bringing people into the knowledge of God. That is a, an honor of like a, the, bringing the Gentiles into God's plan and his people. Because I want you to recognize at this point, Christianity is a new mo- movement known as the way. Man, it is very young. 
Not much history, and apart from being a continuation of Judaism, right? But the knowledge of Jesus and his message is only about 40 years old. About 40 years old, and to be honest with you, it's on the fringes, and it's not overly popular. So anyone who's making a decision then to follow Jesus is like, man, this is a little bit scary. I don't have history attached to this. This is a fairly new movement. All of the people who kind of were a big deal in the beginning, what they called the apostles, the followers of Jesus, these eyewitnesses, they're all gone. It's a little bit unsettling to think about being a follower of Jesus, which then speaks to the style, which is really, really important, the style of this writing. Some of you knows, but Scripture has lots of different styles of writing, right? Apocalyptic language in Daniel and Revelation, which are their own unique. You've got songs and psalms over here, right? You've got prophetic words. But here it's historiography, historiography. The writing of history, this is what it means. The writing of history, the writing of history based on critical examination of sources. Remember that phrase, critical examination, critical examination of sources, and then studying that, the selection of particulars from the trustworthy materials that I've been reading, and then I create a synthesis of particulars into a narrative that will stand the test of critical methods, right? That, the word critical here is, like, you understand critical thinking, you understand, like, when you read an article, like, in the journalism, like, they have to be able to have facts behind it and know their sources, and they've got to have kind of done a good job so you can trust what they're writing. That's what he's doing here. Luke has been, just get the picture, this is a bad example, but you're going to get the idea. Luke, imagine Luke all of a sudden has this stack of papers like this from things people have given him. He's got, like, personal, like, like Q&A that he's done with firsthand eyewitnesses that maybe are still living from the day, right? He has uh, what theologians call the source Q, which we don't really know what that is, but it seems like other Bible, you know, other writers pulled from it. He might have Mark, because Mark is much older. Maybe he's pulling from the first gospel of a written Mark and pulling from it as a source, and he has all of it spread out. All of it spread out at his big table, right? And he's been paid by Theophilus to sit down and do a critical examination of every single thing he has written down on a piece of paper. And then I believe Christ said, all right, God, now lead me. Holy Spirit, lead me in this. And he starts going through, and I have to, have to guess, like critical examination, he's probably taking some things going, this is accurate. It's got critical basis behind it, factual basis. I'm willing to go back to the guy who's paying me to say 100% I believe that this happened. I would give this an A, an A on, on, on reality and being true. And the other things over here is like, ah, Man, I just, that sounds a great story, but I really, I just don't feel comfortable putting that in through critical examination. I'm just not sure that's accurate. I can't factually find basis for it. So I'm going to put that over here in the not put into my letters pile. And that's what Luke is doing. It's a critical examination, going through all the critical, all the stories and all the paperwork and all the things that he had. We have no idea how long it took him. Listen, if he's writing these two books and two letters and all this stuff to go through, it's like parchment paper and like those quills and stuff. I don't know. This is not taking, he has no dictation, right? He's having to write everything, and this is a long process. And so it's really interesting. The, listen, 
Luke and Acts are not written as you sat there and just like got some spiritual heavenly download from heaven and started writing it down. No, it was literal like you do stuff and writing a paper, critical examination of all the resources that he had to put together the best of what he thought he could create for Theophilus and all these Gentile followers. And the result would have been they would have taken it seriously as an attempt to reconstruct and narrate past events so in writing, Theophilus and readers like him with, would have these beautiful picture of the ideas and the themes that have impacted them to find themselves in Scripture. They would look and say, Luke worked hard. He's a doctor, a smart man, educated, who understands how to do critical thinking and put the best of what we have here, this, as historiography, is as accurate as it comes. And they would have read it and said, now this is who Jesus is. This is the story of the church. And this is how we fit into it. Here's the point. This is really important. When Luke was writing, he specifically had Theophilus and Gentiles like him in mind because he wanted to help them understand and legitimize they're standing in the church, and so everything he's writing is with them as their recipient. So as you read through in the upcoming weeks, that's what you're thinking through. This is written to Theophilus, a Gentile like me who is not Jewish culturally, and here's the story, the effort and energy that Luke went into to create an accurate expression of the life of Jesus and the life of the church. And he critically thought about this as a gifted author and a gifted writer, and this is trustworthy. Is it inspired by the Holy Spirit? Obviously, right? He is writing inspired in all of his, his work and all of his education, everything he's using, saying, Holy Spirit, guide me. But this is what it's about. So why is this important, the style well, the importance of the style leads us to our first major theme of Acts, and this is on the screen, the legitimation of the Christian movement. The legitimation of the Christian movement. Luke consistently shows how God authorizes each step taken by the church, either through prophetic fulfillment of Jesus being the Messiah from the Gospels or specific guidance of the Holy Spirit, both in the Gospel and the book of Acts. Many non-Christians at this time would point to the phenomenon of early Christianity and call its legitimacy into question. They would simply say things like, it's a new Gentile cult with none of the respectability of ancient religions handed down from history, or it's an illegitimate offshoot of Judaism having lost all its rootedness in the law of Moses, right, which is the core of the religion of the Jewish people, or simply it's just a band of disorderly troublemakers, followers of a failed revolutionary. You've got to recognize there are all sorts of accusations being thrown at Theophilus, being thrown at his friends as Gentile followers, right? And that's why they were saying, we've got to figure this out. Luke's narrative of Jesus' ministry in the church that grew up in his name paints a picture that shows all these criticisms to prove unfounded. It is a legitimate continuation of the ancient historic people of God. It's not a scandalous movement of subversive elements. In fact, what you would find in the early church is they actually never pushed back against the government. They were actually good Romans as well as being good Christians who never tried to form a rebellion. They just kind of live under the law of the land, being faithful to Jesus. That's super important, super important to recognize. 
The other primary theme in the first seven chapters we see is the power struggle between Jewish leaders and the leaders of the Christ followers in Jerusalem. So as you're reading chapters 1 through 7, be aware of that tension. Be aware of the tension between the, the apostles and the, this, these young followers of Jesus and be aware that there were religious leaders of the day, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers and all these kind of people, right? And so when you walked into the temple to worship, <clears throat> there'd be two clear paths you could take for worship. And there was a competition between them, right? They lived in tension, Read chapter 2, read chapter 3 and 4. Peter and John literally get brought in by the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders. And ultimately, at one point in time, chapter 4, they're literally like beaten. and says, never preach again in the name of Jesus. I mean, it's like there's this great tension. But what you're seeing is Luke is trying to paint the picture here that there is a turnover in leadership. That there is a literal movement from God's grace upon the Jewish leaders now to these Christian Jewish leaders, really. There's a shifting that's happened. You've got to be aware of that as you read through and recognize there's a real power struggle going on here. The idea of legitimation, of legitimizing Christianity as an actual move. Sociology of religion will actually distinguish three types of authority for legitimation of, of a movement. The first, a traditional legitimation, means the institution or figure has authority over the people because of its connection with the long-standing tradition. So think about, think about a monarchy. Because there's a king and a queen, because they have history of generation after generation after generation of leadership, it legitimizes them legitimizes them as the leader over a nation. So here in the great century to be the Jewish leaders enjoyed traditional authority, right? Because they were successors to the traditional offices. The priests in the Sanhedrin held sway of the people in this way. But the second way, the second authority would be called functional legitimation. A person or institution has power or authority over the people because he or she got the job done or the results of its impact are clearly seen. So literally in 2 Corinthians 13, I'm not going to read it, Paul legitimizes his own ministry by the results of his ministry. Listen, because of me, you literally exist as a church in Corinth. That legitimizes that I'm the leader of this movement, the leader of this house, the leader of this church. And so what you could say here is that you're seeing that happen in both of these competitive teams, right? There is some legitimacy over here with our Jewish leaders. There's legitimacy over here that's happening with thousands coming to faith daily, and there's literal energy happening. But the third piece, and this is primary as you read. So as you read through, I want you to see it this way. Charismatic legitimation. Charismatic legitimation. A person or small group has special abilities far beyond what is considered natural, and is thought of as having been especially anointed by God because of these supernatural qualities. I'll read that again. Charismatic legitimation. And this is what Luke is aspiring to and writing about. A, purpose or a person or small group has special abilities far beyond what's considered natural. And is thought of as having been especially anointed by God because of these supernatural qualities. Read the first seven chapters of Acts and see how Luke is speaking to the miracles 
the miracles and the healings and the work of God through the apostles and through Stephen even, right? And just seeing the work that's happening and the idea. Remember, they said to Jesus about Jesus one time. They just looked at him and said, we know that you must come from God because no one can do the things you're doing unless God is behind it. Talks about in the Gospels, right? And what Luke is saying is this is the same here. He legitimizes the movement by saying, look at how God has put his hand upon these men and miracles are happening and it's not happening over here. This is the legitimation that we want you to see, a charismatic legitimation. So as you read, it's not just cool stories but the actual works of power through the Holy Spirit legitimizes a movement. And let me just give you kind of a foreshadowing of where we're going to go. If the power of God moving legitimized an entire movement that's impacted the world today, I wonder if it could still happen through you today. That's the point. We look at it here to see it, legitimize an entire movement of God over here. Maybe it should be something we aspire to, to legitimize the work of God in our lives for those we're sharing Jesus with. As you read, marry those two thoughts together. Again, as stated last week, another overarching theme in Acts is the grafting in of the Gentiles into the people of God. You cannot overstate this. This is a really, really, really big deal. The Gentiles coming in is huge. This is a primary theme we're going to look at. Because, listen, Theophilus is a Gentile. Luke is speaking to him saying, you have an identity as a child of God in our movement. Listen, going back even to the language I was using in the love letter to my girls, there is something powerful about people leading you to find your identity in Christ. Right? That's huge. So as you read through, it's not just historiography and history. It is history that leads to activation of your understanding of who you are in Christ today. Right? So marrying these thoughts. It's not just reading something that happened. It's what happened to speak to us today. An overarching theme. We have an identity. Lastly, we'll go through these pretty quickly. I'm going to be covering these basically like ministry-related issues, things that you find happening in the church among the people of God. And the idea is if it's happening among the people of God, giving them identity, it defines who they are as a people. It wasn't just for yesterday, but it's timeless in nature. I want to say what I'm about to show you and express that you see in the first seven chapters are things that are timeless. They were true, what the church was supposed to look like as a people, right, as a family over here. It was true 10 years ago, and it's true today, okay? Here we go. Number one, spirit-empowered ministry. Just put them all up there, spirit-empowered ministry, we're going to look at this. We talked about this for several weeks over the summer. Our simple takeaway is this. Luke uses Acts to teach Theophilus and his readers about the reality and importance of God's people moving and ministering in the power of God's spirit. Right? Number two, he teaches about the communal, familial context of the church. 
This is huge. Conversion to, to faith in Jesus meant joining, listen, it meant joining a holistic community of Christ followers and growing into Christian maturity by means of constant association with and mutual sharpening of other believers. Acts 2, 44, 46 through 47. The idea is going to be you are not going to grow with Christ just at home by, with your, your nuclear family, right, in the way that you ever would by putting yourself in community community here and allowing the masses to sharpen you. Taking yourself out of some homogeneous group who thinks just like you and talks just like you and believes just like you do, and all of a sudden everyone tells you what you already believe rather than being challenged so you can grow. That's what family does. It's what a group of community does. It helps broaden your understanding of who Jesus is. Talked about it. We see this beautifully represented. Third, we're going to talk about the responsibility to care for those that are in need. Responsibility to care for those that are in need. We're going to dive into this, but a fulfillment of, of a command from Deuteronomy 15, uh, 7 through 11, which says, For eternity, every God-fearing man or woman has a responsibility and every single day to look for those who are in need and to care for them. It's just a God-given command in Deuteronomy, and Luke is saying, and saying, hey, and look how the early church fulfilled it in Acts 2, 43-45, Acts 4, 32-37, Acts 20, 34-35. In these stories, Luke teaches about God's call in the church to a deep sense of responsibility for those outside of your immediate family and the people that you're friends with. They are stories that change the narrative. Listen, they are still, listen, most Americans and people in the West hate these stories. They love them as stories, but they don't like them as something they're to embrace. The idea for us in these stories that changes the narrative about your possessions, quote unquote, or about possessions in general. In the West, a couple of the first words our children learn to use is my and mine. Because we've taught them that. Acts would teach us to instruct our children and ourselves persistently and intentionally with the alternative Jesus gospel-centered words, ours, God's, and I have enough as it relates to possessions. This is a primary theme we see all the way throughout Acts. Number four, Acts expresses God as a missional God, leading his followers to be a missional evangelistic people. Remember, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Being a witness and evangelism are driving forces among the apostles in the first seven chapters. Think about every single time something happened, what happened? One of the apostles, or Stephen, stood up and preached a gospel message for the sake of those who were listening so that they may respond and give their lives to Jesus. Every act was to lead someone who did not know Christ to Christ. It was an evangelistic, missional language. We see it, again, that prophetic statement of Jesus in Acts 1, they will be empowered and they will go. All of this speaks to the missional and evangelistic mindset of Jesus for us as the church. There are always people to go to. It's part of the theme. And the last fifth, Acts represents several examples of corporate prayer as the number one action taken by the church when facing opposition 
or when seeking God's will. All hell breaks loose, then we pray. Takes us back to the importance of Christian community. Singly, we'll be defeated. Together, our strength in God multiplies exponentially as we cry out to him and we believe in him corporately. Acts chapter 1, 12 through 14, Acts 2, 1, and specifically the story of Acts chapter 4, 23 through 31. I know this is really abnormal for how I preach and teach on a Sunday morning. So you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired, Steve. Get the good stuff, right? This is the good stuff, right? This is like the overview of the book of Acts, so that when, it re- when we read and give ourselves to it, understanding actually what's behind it and what the purpose is and the themes and how it shapes us can change us. Luke is writing it because here's the deal. The gospel and the acts change the world. Change the world. The works of the apostles, the early church, the non-apostles, those people like you and me, and the works that they did literally changed the world. We're sitting here because of it. It has that type of influence and that type of power. And so when we begin to read through it, it's not just to read history. It's historiography. Some guy worked his tail off. Reading, working, to put this together to legitimize the entire movement of the people of God and to help everyone find their place in it and to teach us. And then when you gather as a people, here are some of what the expression should look like in a timeless manner because when it does, it draws people to Christ. We want to be an active people. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I just give you all of this. I know some people tuned out in parts of it, God, because we're just going through kind of just a teaching time. And I get it, Lord, it's been a long week. But I just pray the pieces that need to settle into our hearts, they would settle in. God, I pray the things, Lord, that you spoke in this moment to help us begin to get a, a true biblical grasp of Acts would come alive. And I pray today for each person here that, Lord, the book of Acts, the first seven chapters of Acts, God, they would come alive in a new, powerful, and a fresh way in ways that it never has for every person who's in here. Lord, I pray, God, for our Sunday mornings. I I pray for our small groups that, Lord, it would not be a time to to argue or to try to be right theologically. It would be a time to be changed and a time to love one another and family, God, and to to be activated for the purposes of God in the same way the early church was, the same way I believe Theophilus, God, and his readers were. So, Holy Spirit, would you come and do what only you can do? Lead us this morning. Lead us in the next 10 weeks. And God, we pray, would your will be done in us and in the life of vintage in Jesus' name. I invite you this morning. I know, again, this is like a hard, weird, weird message to respond to, but I do believe God's stirring in all of you, whether it's you stepped in this morning with God stirring, maybe in worship God was stirring, but I want to invite you this morning to, to respond, whatever God is doing in your life. If you want God to bring healing this morning, salvation, we have ministry teams to be available. They love to pray for you for anything going on in life. You want to come and take communion this morning just to, to center yourself again, to remember Jesus, to remember Remember his sacrifice, to remember his love for you, that I invite you to come and to remember the work of Jesus, right, on the cross and his resurrection, to remember his blood poured out, his body broken for you, and say, God, as I take this, would you awaken me again to the truth of who you are? Maybe just pray this morning, saying, God, would you center me? 
God, would you awaken, would you awaken the word of God in me in a way that God has never been awakened? Whatever it may be, I just invite you to respond as the Lord leads. I'll come back up here in a few minutes and I'll close this out. But let's God, let's let God do what he wants to do in each of us this morning. You respond as the Lord leads. Thank you.